Hello. Good morning. Um, I have one of these because every kid at UCI has one of these water bottles. And it's the most well-hydrated campus in existence. Um, so uh, once again, thanks for having me here. Uh, my name is Derek Rishmaui. I'm the campus minister at, at UCI with RUF. And uh, it's just an honor and a privilege to be able to open up God's word with you this morning. Uh, in order to do that well, though, I, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and bow your heads and pray with me. And we'll, we'll go ahead and get into this. Okay? Um, Holy Father, we thank you so much for your kindness. You are holy and high and exalted, and yet you give us this space to meet with you. And it is you giving us this space. It is you giving us this time, not the other way around, because it is not you who needs it. It is we who need to meet with you, to hear from you. So God, we ask you that in this time and in this place, you would meet with us. You would take up your word and you would re-speak it by the power of your spirit and transform us by your presence in your truth, in your gospel. Let your gospel go forward and let us more and more bear the image of your precious son through this encounter. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen. So, uh, so when I was a kid, the idea of salt and sweet going together didn't really make sense to me. Like uh, salted caramel candy. The first time I heard about that concept, I thought, why would you ruin my caramel candy? I don't get it that often. And you're going to put salt on it. That's just weird. Uh, and, then I, and, then I, and then I tried it, and I was older. I was like, oh, this is, this is good. This is, this is an interesting fusion that, that, that kind of goes together in a weird sort of sense. And then you kind of move on to more sophisticated fusions when you're older, like Korean taco food trucks and in and out dipping your fries in the milkshake, which if you're not like a high foodie, you may not have tried that. Um, it's sophisticated, but it works, right? You get these weird fusions in life where you think, how is that? And then it does. I bring this up just because if you've been in church for a while, uh, you may know that the passage that was just read Isaiah 53 is actually a crucial text in church history that usually is associated with Good Friday and Easter, right? And so the question for us then is, is, is why are we thinking about it now? Right, just a few days after Thanksgiving, uh, right at the beginning of the, of the kind of the Christmas season where we celebrate the birth of Jesus and the mystery of the incarnation, why, why are we dealing with this text and we're dealing with this text because the reality is we're actually entering into the season of Advent, as we've heard, right? Historically, Advent is, this, is the portion of the church calendar where the church waits, right? It anticipates the coming of God, both in his first coming in the incarnation, but also more in his second coming in glory, as the, as the Apostles' Creed says, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. So Advent is historically a time to reflect on judgment Death, hell, all the, all the goodies, right? And Advent, Advent is Advent's really meant to be a wake-up call for the church, right? Moderns, especially, we tend to see ourselves as sort of invulnerable, unaccountable, autonomous selves. Charles Taylor is a philosopher. He talks about being buffered selves, and we, we kind of uh, look at our interior life, and, and the transcendent really doesn't, doesn't break in past the ceiling down into our lives unless we allow it to. Right? We, we're the captains of our fate. We're the, we're the lords of our own lives. And so often we approach spirituality as if it's sort of a, a, a hobby, 
right? Something that we add to our already complete lives to enrich it. And so many of us come to church around Christmas time to hear nice, warm, comforting messages about family, joy to the world, and maybe add a bit of spirituality to take the edge off of the, the commercialism that we all just engaged in on Black Friday, right? But Advent, Advent kind of stops us and pours cold water on all that, right? It's old school. It's the record scratch that changes the tune in the middle of a song, and it, and it reminds us we're not invulnerable. We're not autonomous that way. Christian spirituality isn't some addition to our already complete life, because it reminds us that the reality is we will stand one day before God, the creator, the holy judge who sits on the throne of the universe in majesty and glory, and we will give an account for every word we've uttered, every minute of our lives. And the church is called to wait for that coming, that judgment, and the question is what will God find? Who will we be on that day? How will we stand on that day? These are the questions that Advent forces us to grapple with. And as it happens, there are also the questions that this, the, the servant in this passage answers. It, our text today comes out of a collection of what are known as the, the four servant songs. In this chunk of scripture, Isaiah 40 to 55, the prophet Isaiah in this passage, it, it's, it's this blend of judgment and hope. Isaiah is, is an Old Testament prophet, and he prophesies a lot of bad news and then some good news and everything in between. And one of the things that he prophesied to Israel is that there was going to be a judgment coming. They had worshipped foreign gods. They had sacrificed their children. They had made bad political deals. They had, they had done every, everything in the book. And there was going to be a t time where God was going to judge. And he was going to call in the Babylonians to execute that judgment and drag them off into exile. But he said also, on the other side of that exile, there's going to be a new exodus. Just like God saved Israel out of Egypt and the slavery to Pharaoh, one day God is going to save Israel out of Babylon and their slavery to the Babylonians. But not only that, this wasn't just going to be a political salvation. There was actually going to be a deeper salvation, an, an exodus that cuts to the core of the human condition. It's going to be a, an exodus out of, of the condition of sin itself. And so he was going to send somebody to get the job done. This would be the servant. And the servant is this mysterious figure. And you see these four, four passages. He will do many things, right? He's going to be a light to the nations. He's going to be the salvation of Israel. He's going to be the hope of the world. And what's more, paradoxically enough, he's going to be a sufferer. And even more than that, he's going to come and do the things that only God himself can do. And so somehow the servant is somehow also the Lord. And we have these paradoxes building, and they all kind of come together in a point in this passage. And the answer to understanding all these paradoxes is to read this passage the way the church has read them for hundreds of years, which is as a future testimony to the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels. When we look at Jesus, and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read this passage in light of the ministry of Jesus that we see in the Gospels, and what we're going to see is this mystery of salvation and suffering, the way they're intertwined. And then the key, we'll see, is first the way his suffering reveals our need for salvation, Second, the way his suffering is the achievement of our salvation. And third, the way it is actually the shape of our salvation. As, and as we see those, those three points, 
if we dial in, I think we'll, we'll actually be better prepared to, to greet Christmas with new eyes, the Advent season with new eyes, and our hearts will be able to understand the miracle of what happened 2,000 years ago when, that, when Jesus comes as that, as that little child for us in the way that he actually prepares us to greet him on the day of his return. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. So to do that, we're going to turn to this first point, the way Jesus exposes our great need, the suffering of the servant exposes our great need for salvation. Now, what do I mean by exposes our great need? Well, you, you've probably all heard the phrase, something along the lines of your, your reaction to other people or your reaction to the situation says more about you than it does about them or more about you than it does about the situation. And, and if you're a parent, you've often seen that, you know, your, your kid does something, you react to it. Well, that was more about me than, than actually what my kid did. That was a little spill or something like that. And you, you can't like absolutize that. You know, often you get somebody who, who just says, well, that's more about them just as a cover for being a jerk all the time. That's not, that's not what we're looking at here. But it is true when it comes to our reaction to Jesus. Your reaction to Jesus and his suffering often says more about you than what it says about him. And so what, is the, what does the passage say about folks' reactions to Jesus? Well, first there was confusion. Right, actually, a couple of verses before uh, before fifty three, uh, there, there's a line that says, "As many were astonished at you." Right, the, Isaiah prophesies there will be astonishment and confusion about the servants, and there was always questions about Jesus, confusion and astonishment in the whole of his ministry. And I think that's because Jesus, in many ways, didn't fit people's expectations about the coming Messiah and what he was supposed to look like and be like. Right? What does Isaiah said? Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. When God came among us in the flesh, he came as a common, ordinary-looking, blue-collar worker at the edge of the Roman Empire in some podunk town. And he comes preaching about the kingdom of God and the salvation of God. And everybody's looking at him like, you? You're, you're, you're the one bringing this? Are you, are, you, are you kidding me? Right? This is what they said. Isn't this, isn't this Mary's kid? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? I went to school with him. Where does he come off claiming this kind of special authority? Where does he, even when he came off doing these, these mighty works, people were astonished at him and confused by him. Even more than that, they were hostile to him, right? Just like Isaiah predicts, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with griefs. What Isaiah clearly predicts is that Jesus would suffer as a result of the hostility and the rejection of his own neighbors. He is a man of sorrows weighed down by grief because he is hated by those nearest to him. When the shine of his ministry wears off, they turn on him. This happens all over the place in the Gospels, but I think especially of Luke 4. Luke 4, Jesus comes preaching and teachings, and, and, and he's in the synagogue, and he, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, actually, 61. And, and people get excited because it's this, it's this prophecy of the coming salvation of God, and they think he's, he's doing it, he's bringing it. And in many of their minds, this is, this is, though, this is about God coming back and being king by, by judging the Romans, who are oppressing them, judging the pagans who have always been the threat to the people of God. But then Jesus drops a hint that really the issue isn't so much the pagans out there, but it's actually the idolatry in here. 
It's Israel's own sin that he's come to deal with. And, and, and he says, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And then they later picked up stones, and they they were actually going to push them off a cliff or stone. I'm I'm trying to remember the details, but they it was, it, was, it, was, it was a death mob at that point. Now, he slipped away just in time, but eventually they get him, right? At the end of his ministry, Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends to a high-profile political enemies, the Roman state, and then is executed unjustly on a cross next to two bandits, two thieves, two revolutionaries. Just like Isaiah prophesied, he was oppressed and afflicted By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And this is where Isaiah calls us to face up and understand that this this is us, right? The roots of the same confusion and hostility are rooted in our own hearts. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Isaiah puts us all in the same hole. We're all stray sheep. We all turn to our own ways to oppress the servant. And I I could show this in a number of ways, but think about what a lot of us do, right? Not just irreligious people, but especially religious people. When we come to Jesus, we, we often come expecting him to give us, again, a little bit of spirituality or for him to maybe tune up the thing that in our life that we can see is going wrong, right? We, we come to church and we, we try to be good. We get, our, we get involved a bit so that he'll fix that thing in our marriage, or he'll handle that health issue, or he'll deal with that recalcitrant child that can't quite get it together, or, or that job situation. We come to him for these things and, and show God if we really deserve it, because we've been here. But what happens when he disagrees with us? Right? When, he, when we find out that he says after a few months, you get the sense he's saying, no, I, I'm actually not going to fix your health for you yet. I'm actually not going to deal with that marital issue for you. I'm not going to fix your spouse for you right now. Your kid is still going to be that way for a few more months at least. What do we do? What do we do? Because the reality is, God says to us, I have bigger things to deal with you, right? Your biggest problem is not your kid. Your biggest problem is not that issue that you think of. Your biggest problem is that you're alienated from me. And you think you're the autonomous Lord of your own life. And what I actually need you to do is give me your whole life. Repent and turn it all over to me. And then we'll, we'll sort out all the things that I know need to be dealt with. What happens when we hear that? We actually get, we, we get angry, right? We get disappointed with God. And we either nurse bitterness or we reject him outright. We cut him out of our lives. We stone him in our hearts. We've all stoned him in our hearts. Theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way, there are only two ways possible to encounter Jesus. Man must die or he must put Jesus to death. Man must die or he must put Jesus to death. Either our ideas of Jesus, our ideas of ourselves, and our ideas of what needs to happen to us, they either die in our repentance and we submit to his lordship, or he needs to die because we can't stand another lord in our life. 
And this is how the suffering of the servant exposes our need. God shows up in the flesh and we kill him. How dark, how confused, and how sick and sinful are our hearts that when the perfect, righteous Son of God shows up, we demand his death. We are utterly alienated from God in ourselves, utterly unable to rescue ourselves. In ourselves, on the last day, the servant shows us that we would stand condemned. Now, paradoxically, this leads us to our second point. Because the suffering of the servant just doesn't just expose our need, it actually answers our need for salvation. And the key, I think, comes in verse 10. Verse 10 says, now his soul makes an offering for guilt. What does that mean? Well, the term offering for guilt is the Hebrew word asham. And, and if you go to Leviticus chapters 1 to 7, there's actually a list of sacrifices that God implemented in the worship system of Israel. And they were, they were all meant to maintain the relationship in different ways. There was, there was gift sacrifices. There was, there was communion sacrifices, sin ones. But then there was also the guilt offering. And the guilt offering was meant to repair a violation in the relationship either against God or, or, or our neighbors. And we can kind of get intuitively how this works. It's sort of an iron law of human relations. Uh, every, every, every guy who's come home with like some flowers after, after he does something foolish or he forgets a, an anniversary or something like that, is it, he's making a secular atonement offering, a repair, a breach in the relationship. Or, or, or we do litigation and, and, you, and you, you, you pay off a liability and indemnity. It's a secular atonement offering. The guilt offering, though, goes deeper and that it deals with your relationship with God. The long and the short of it is that we sin against God, and we owe a debt. We deserve a debt of punishment. But the guilt offering is a way of healing that breach. You take something of value, in the Old Testament, a costly ram without blemish, and then you give it up as a ransom offering or a compensation that answers the debt. And the idea is that even in the answering of the debt, there's a confession in there. There's a saying, I have sinned. I have fallen short. I, have, I owe this should be me. Here, take it. And God accepts it as an offering, and that covers, and it brings atonement. And the logic here of Isaiah is at once very plain and, and somehow mysterious in that we are guilty. We have sinned against God and our neighbor in a million ways. And again, if we, you know, if we had the Son of God, we, we would put him to death, and that, that's, our, that's our guilt. What would, what would satisfy, what would answer for that kind of radical guilt? Ironically enough, it's only the sacrifice of the servant, right? How, how, how can that work? Well, Isaiah reminds us, first, he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He is innocent. He is righteous. He doesn't owe his own ransom or debt. He is without blemish or guilt like those sacrifices were supposed to be. He needs no sacrifice for himself. And for another thing, he is not actually just any random person. Remember, this, he, is, he is the coming king, of Israel. He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh, an infinitely valuable and worthy son. And so what he does is as that person, he takes responsibility for our guilt. He takes responsibility for our debt. He takes it up in his hands and he offers himself up and his perfectly beautiful and obedient life. He offers it up for us as a ransom for our sins, for our guilt, as an atonement he suffers what we should suffer and offers up what we could never offer on our behalf. And in this way, his life counts as ours. His death counts as ours. His death is, in a way, ours. 
And this is what theologians have called the great exchange for thousands of years. We see this is the meaning of verse 5. Verse 5 says this again, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This, is, this, this exchange, this substitution, is at the heart of our faith. And it's really at the heart of our moral imagination. There's a reason when we, when we hear you know, about the 9-11 firefighters, or we hear about uh, a soldier throwing himself on a grenade in, in, a, in, a, in a foxhole, or we, we think of great works of literature, um, Tale of Two Cities, that if you haven't read it yet, I'm blowing the ending, but that's on you. It's hundreds of years old. Uh, in the end, the end of the book, uh, Sidney Carton, who's been kind of a, a, a jerk the entire time, he tricks the protagonist, uh, Charles Darnay, into trading places with him before he's supposed to go to the executioner's block, and they just happen to look exactly alike. Uh, Dickens' writing is funny there. But, but he tricks him into taking the place, and then he goes to the guillotine for him. He sacrifices himself. He substitutes himself. And we hear that, and something in us responds because we know this is the heart of a deeper reality of the exchange that Christ made for us. Now, I want us to sit with that for a minute. Let that think more about that, how that works for us. And the reason this works for us is that the sacrifice is actually the willing heart of the servant. Jesus in Mark 10, 45 says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right, and right there, Jesus is saying that unlike every other king, I come as a king who serves, not to be served. But in that passage, he's actually quoting or alluding to Isaiah 53. He's taking up Isaiah 53 in his own mouth and saying, this is about me. This is what I came to do. I came to give myself as a ransom for you. And this helps us in many ways, but two ways to not get confused. The first thing that we need to understand is that Jesus goes to the cross willingly and knowingly. Right? Jesus was put to death by human sinners, but he went and suffered what he did, not against his will. John 10, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus says, this is my choice. I, I am sovereign over my death here. I go to the cross by my own authority. Unlike so many rams and sheeps who come before, Jesus' sacrifice is a willing, rational, voluntary one born of love for us. The second thing that this shows us and it keeps us, helps us keep clear is the love of God for us. See, he says he goes by his own authority, but he says he also goes by the will of the Father who loves him for it. And this is crucial for understanding verse 10 in Isaiah 53 where it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There is a confusion that comes up sometimes when we hear these verses and we have this bad picture of, of there's, there's an angry father in heaven who just needs to see somebody die and thank God, loving Jesus comes along and calms him down with his own death. That is not the picture of the cross that we have. No, the thing we need to understand is that the suffering servant comes for our salvation by the will of the one God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Out of the great love for us, the Father sends the Son in the power of the Spirit to deal with our sin, 
to deal with the judgment of the one God, to deal with our guilt. And this is the love of the Father at work and revealed in the love of the Son and the power of the Spirit. This is why doctrines like the Trinity matter. We, we confess these things because they help us keep the love of God in focus when we look at the mystery of the cross where all of God's glorious wisdom and grace and justice and power and might and holiness are revealed. Because in one act, the Lord displays it all in dealing with our guilt and saving us from it. This is why the servant will act wisely. He acts with the wisdom of the one God. And now we begin to see the way all of these things converge, the way Advent, Christmas, and the cross come together Gregory of Nyssa, an early church father, and this is printed in your bulletin, says this, if one examines this mystery, one will prefer to say, not that his death was a consequence of his birth, but that the birth was undertaken so that he could die. Jesus comes at Christmas so he could die on Good Friday to save us from our sins so that one day we could stand before God at the second coming, clean, without guilt, on the basis of his work for us. This, he came to do many things, but he came to do no less than this for us. And catch this, this is why, this is why our churches preach week after week this one truth that salvation is by grace. It is entirely a work and a gift of God, right? God doesn't need to save you because of your own goodness or because you earned it. Right? He saves you because you need saving and he's good. Right? Your only role in the whole affair is giving up the myth of your own sovereign ability to govern your life, your spiritual life, and save yourself, and instead turn and recognize his lordship in saving you. He is a saving lord. Which brings us to the third point, the way the suffering of the servant shapes our, our salvation. It, it shows our need for it. It, it, it accomplishes it, but it also shapes our salvation, and, and, and I want to turn again to verse 10, where he says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. This is kind of a, this is, this is, this is interesting if you don't have a resurrection, right? But we do, right? The resurrection is, is, is what follows after the cross. And so Jesus' suffering isn't just about giving us a not guilty verdict on the last day, but it's about actually transforming us into uh, children of the servant, children of God, right? He will prolong his days, and in that prolonging of his days, there is, there is an adoption of children. There is, there is an inclusion of, of, of us who put our faith in him into the family of God, See, because when Jesus rose again from the dead, he ascended in heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit into our lives. So if you put your faith in Jesus, if you're united with Jesus, you get the Holy Spirit. You get the family spirit in that sense. And this is, a, this is, a, this is, a, this is huge in so many ways, right? It's a comfort in dark times. It's a, it's a source of hope. You're a child of God. But it's also a source of mission and meaning. Right, this is where things start to get practical. In the Bible and in real life, a child resembles their parents, even their father. I, I resemble my father. I'm resembling him more and more each day. Uh, and, 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 and you start to take on the family likeness, and you actually enter the family business. Right? Your dad's a carpenter. You become a carpenter. Right? And for us, 
so it is with the children of the servant. Think about what Jesus says in Mark 10, right before the saying we read. He says this, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Christians are sons and daughters who are servants of God, each other, our neighbors, just like the son is, who is the greatest servant. So what does that look like? Concretely, what does that look like? It looks like all sorts of things, right? For some of you, it, this, this servanthood uh, looks like a change in your approach to your family, right? Learning to approach your wife or your husband or your children, not as a, not as a drain on your productivity or an interruption in, 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 in your hobby life or whatever, or as your servants, but, but as an area of sacrificial servants to God, Right, to love them the way that he loves us, to, to, to sacrifice our everyday tendency to put ourselves first in every situation in order to love those in need, those in our own home. For some of you, it means changing the way you go to work. Right? You start to approach work with an attitude of servanthood, serving customers, serving coworkers. Even if you're the boss, you now manage or you now direct actually in order to bless everyone there. You, you exercise leadership in a way that helps the whole company flourish in order to bless your, your customers. In order, so so you, you enter in with a humble mindset even as you lead, even from the top if that's you. For many of you, it, it also may just consider changing the way you approach uh, coming here. Right? The church itself, I don't know what the, what the volunteer and servanthood culture is here, but church is not just a place where we come to receive goods and services. It's actually a place where we come to love our neighbors, our brothers and sisters. So that may look like all sorts of things, volunteering to uh, help prep communion, volunteering to uh, meet folks in the foyer, volunteering to, to, to bear the burden of, of sacrificial suffering in children's ministry or youth ministry or something like that. Uh, but... But, that, but that's the kind of suffering that bears fruit in the lives of the church, in the future of the church, right? This is how we see our offspring grow, right? Just so you know, one of the, one of the greatest acts of, a, of evangelism and discipleship, you want to see the church grow, take care of your kids, disciple them, catechize them, pour into them, volunteer with them. And we're called to serve sacrificially in costly ways, and we have every reason to do so, don't we? Right? We, we serve because Jesus served us. We serve because we've been given the same love by which Jesus loved us. We serve because we've been humbled by the death of Christ for us, so we know we're not above it. We serve because we've been given the hope of resurrection in God's children. So even if you sacrifice something in this life in order to serve, you will receive it a hundredfold in the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus promises his disciples. But most of all, we serve because we have been captured by an image of the beauty of the servant son who gave himself on our behalf, and we want to look like that. We want to be like him in such a way that the world sees him in the way that we conduct ourselves. And as we do that, actually we start to become that way. As you serve, as you sacrifice, as you die these little deaths, the Holy Spirit works resurrection in your heart. And so for every little thing that dies in your life, the Holy Spirit rises something else up. And what rises up is Christ-like character, is the image of the Son who is the servant. And you look more and more like Jesus each day which is beautiful. 
And so the question for us today is just, there's just a couple of questions, right? The first is, have you reckoned with your need today, right? Who will you be on the day of judgment? Have, how will you face him, right? If you've, never, if you've never decided, if you've never actually submitted your life to God as, as, as your God in Christ, I know we have elders here who'd love to talk to you about that after the service. What does it mean to actually trust in Jesus' work for you on the cross and to give your life over to him? So if that's not you, if that's you, talk to our elders today. But if, that's, if, if you've already made that decision and you've been enveloped in the life of Christ, the question is, have you, when was the last time you just considered the great love of God for you and the cross? The, the way that he came for you willingly, passionately, in order to rescue you, in order to draw you to himself, in the way that he wants to remake you into the image of his son to make your life that beautiful through the work that he's called you to at home and at work and, and, and in the places that he's called you to. And if that's the case, as we consider that great love, well, then the, then the last thing to do today is to worship him, to praise his great name for what he's done to sing as the assembly of the Son's great work of his suffering and of our salvation. And so uh, it's to that that we'll turn now. But before we go ahead and do that, we'll go ahead and bow our heads and pray. Holy Father, you are so good and so kind. You are righteous. And you make many righteous through the work of your servant. God, we ask you right now that you would continue to do that work, continue to save us, continue to transform us, continue to make us more and more into the image of your son, particularly as we praise your name and we recognize your glory. Meet with us and transform us by your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.